Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you and are eager to take that Bible and study with us. As we mentioned this morning, we're going to work methodically through some material very carefully. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, perhaps there's one in a pew close to you. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone, then get that out and let's follow along and look at some very basic principles. We began a two-part study this morning where we introduced the idea that false teachers... False teaching, era, and false teachers is not pleasant to address. It's not pleasant to talk about. It's not pleasant to listen to. And yet, nearly every New Testament book touches on doctrinal error and deals with that. And so if we don't like dealing with error, then we are going to have a hard time with a lot of the New Testament, obviously. We started also with the fact that the Bible is abundant in warnings that there will be false teachers. First. John 4 and verse 1 says, Believe not every spirit, because there are many false prophets gone out into the world. 2 Peter 2 and in verse 1, There are false prophets among the people of old, and there are false prophets even among the people of Peter's day, and that's true even of our own day and time. Perhaps one of the most noted warnings is that of Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 15, and that is that there are false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. We'll say more about that passage a little bit later. And so we began a study on the dangers of error. What are the dangers of error? Well, we made two points this morning, and here was the first. Just as a little simple review of that, and if you weren't here, then I encourage you to get the, the CD, and I'll be glad to supply the material of the slides. But our first point was that here we talked about how to determine what is error. Error is determined because it is in contrast to the revelation of God. If it is in contrast to the revelation of God, it is doctrinal error. Error is not determined by the amount of error that's taught. And then we also pointed out in light of Romans 14 that not all disagreements are doctrinal error. And then we move to the question of how error is spread. Error is spread both inside the church and outside the church. And furthermore, we've talked about how error is both promoted openly and sometimes privately and undercover and under radar. And therefore, elders need to be alert of what's taught, comments that are made in class, material that may be circulated, private teaching that might be done. Elders need to be well aware and attuned to that. Let's move now to our third point. Let's talk about the danger of error. Suppose it be established that error is being taught, whether it's privately and undercover and under radar, or maybe it's even openly advocated. What danger is there in that error being taught and being circulated? Is there any danger in that? Well, first of all, let's talk about one of the things about the danger is who might be influenced by that. If error could be taught and no one listens and no one is influenced, then consequently we don't need to worry about that. But if somebody could be influenced by that, then there is indeed a danger. Let's go to Matthew 24. This ought to be familiar because this was our text in Bible class this morning. In Matthew chapter 24, this was talking about in the days uh, prior to uh, just before the destruction of Jerusalem. The text says that there would be many false prophets who would arise and they would deceive many, the text says. And here's what I learned from that. That when there are false teachers, they influence people. They cause people to believe the same thing. And many are influenced by that. 
Let's go to the second passage mentioned here, 2 Peter. We already introduced 2 Peter in our study this morning, but the whole chapter deals with false teachers. Talks about some of their characteristics, some of the effect, the impact they have. But furthermore, verse 2 says, and many will follow their destructive ways. So what I learned from that, and we could stop at this point and we've accomplished something, that we've warned about the danger that error when it's taught, whether it's undercover or whether it's openly advocated outside the church or in the church, that many could end up following that error. Let's go even further. Let's go back to Matthew 16. We were there earlier this morning as we talked about the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus in verse 6 said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The disciples misunderstood that and they began to talk about, is it because we didn't bring bread? And Jesus rebuked them for thinking that, but he was talking, according to verse 12, about the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, it is interesting that he talks about the doctrine that they taught, which was error, and he pictures it as a leavening effect. What leaven does is it permeates. So the danger is, who's, who's, who is being influenced? Well, if error is taught, even if it's innocently taught, where one thinks, I'm teaching the truth, this is what the truth is, but it is doctrinal error, it has a permeating effect. Just like a little leaven though accidentally put into the, the dough, is going to permeate the whole lump of dough. And so that's who would be influenced. Many could be influenced as error is circulated and goes unchecked. But let's go a step further. Part of the danger of error is the way that it appears. We mentioned in our study this morning that teachers of error don't always appear as some untrustworthy person that looks like a person you shouldn't even trust to begin with, and they're wearing a name tag that says, I am a false teacher. That's not the way that works. Here's the way false teaching works. It appears to be harmless. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7 and in verse 15. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is winding the sermon down and comes down to the conclusion and the invitation, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Now they may be honest in the sense that they think they're teaching the truth, but they have a devouring effect, though they seem to be innocent. They appear to be harmless. And so they may be very kind. They may be very nice. Some of the, the most uh, 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 productive false teachers or most influential false teachers, what I'm trying to say, have been men or women, for that matter, who have been very generous and very nice and very cordial so that they win their audience. I mentioned this morning Carl Ketcherside. You've heard the name, but you probably never met the man. But anyone who ever met Carl Ketcherside, he was one of the most kind and gentle fellows. He could knife you in the back, but at the same time, he came across as very caring and loving person. And yet he taught his error. Part of the problem is they appear to be harmless. No harm being done. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As we mentioned this morning, we're not going to just make passing references. We're going to take the time to work through these passages. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 13 and 14. Paul warned about those who were false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They're false apostles. They're making claims that are not true. They're teaching doctrines that are not true. 
and they are appearing to be apostles of Christ. Look at verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. So if Satan can appear like he's the right person, the angel of light, then his, his disciples and teachers of his error can also transform themselves into apostles or disciples of Christ. So part of the danger of false teaching and error is that it appears to be harmless. What's the harm? No harm being done, no harm is accomplished. Now let's spend a little time talking about the damage it does. Error does damage. If truth is important and truth saves, then error does some damage. And let's see what damage that error may do. First of all, it corrupts morals. It corrupts morals, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 33. So let's turn to the context of 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about what the context is dealing with. The apostle is addressing a question concerning the resurrection. There are some, according to verse 12, we mentioned this morning, among you who say there is no resurrection. And he's addressing that question. Now when he gets to the, toward the end of the chapter, or at least later in the chapter, at verse 33, or let's start at verse 32. He says, if the dead do not rise, I'm beginning about the middle of verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, here's the consequence of that doctrine. If there is no resurrection, then here's the conclusion that we have to buy and we have to accept. And that is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, let's just live life with all the gusto. If there's no resurrection and you want to commit fornication, just commit fornication because there's no resurrection. There's no consequence to that. And if you want to drink, then drink. Do whatever you want to do. That's the point. So verse 33 now, be not deceived, evil company corrupts good habits or good morals. You've heard that most often quoted in the context, watch who your friends and your associates are, don't run with the wrong crowd because they'll corrupt your morals. That is a proper use of the passage, but it is in the context of the effect of false teaching and false teachers. They will corrupt your morals. Verse 32 is an example of that. If they teach there's no resurrection and they convince their hearers, then the hearers are going to say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so what does it do? Well, first of all, it corrupts morals. If, if a person buys into error, it's going to change what they do and how they live and how they act. But let's go further. It can overthrow the faith of some. Paul warned Timothy about some false teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 18. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 18. And he says at verse 18, let's back up to verse 17, he talks about the message, it spreads like a cancer. This is the message of error that is being taught. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. He identifies those who are teaching the error who have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past. Well, what's the big deal of someone coming along and saying, I believe the resurrection is already over. Hymenaeus and Philetus taught that. Are you reading with me at the end of verse 13? And they overthrow the faith of some. Doctrinal error has the impact of overthrowing the faith of some. How does that work? In this context, because they were teaching the resurrection is already past, it has an impact upon what their faith is. Here's how that works. It undermines the very word that is the basis of faith. 
So if you convince someone the resurrection is already past, the Word of God says it is not already past. It is undermining the very Word, the revelation, that is the basis for the faith. Let me give you an illustration of that. Suppose someone teaches premillennialism. Premillennialism is a concept that most of our religious friends believe. It is the concept that says Jesus is coming back on earth and is going to establish his kingdom. So what's the big deal if someone teaches premillennialism and he convinces? Suppose someone rises up in the church here and they begin to teach premillennialism and they begin to influence five or six or maybe ten people believing the same thing. Is there a danger in that? It could overthrow their faith because premillennialism undermines the word of God. How so? Because it says Jesus is not king now and Jesus is not priest now. The kingdom has not yet been established. So it undermines the very principle of the revelation of God that is the basis for our faith. Let me add to that for a moment. Quite often in the context of talking about error, Sometimes questions are raised that are never answered. Some of you remember Charles Holt, a well-known gospel preacher a number of years ago, taught and defended the truth, and then he took a left turn and went off the deep end. But Charles Holt had a history of doing this. He would be get before an audience, and he would raise questions that he would never answer. And when someone would say, are, are you saying then that Da-da-da-da-da, whatever it was that he'd raise. Oh, no, I'm not saying it. I'm just asking. I'm just asking questions. That's all I'm doing is asking questions. What he was doing is by the questions that would be raised that are never answered, where he was undermining the very word that was the basis of faith and overthrew his own faith in the context. What's the danger of error? It overthrows the faith of some. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 19. Paul addresses Timothy in the first letter, warning about some who would, whose teaching, he said, would make shipwreck of the faith. Start at verse 18. I charge, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and good conscience, which some having rejected, there is the rejection of the word, contrary to the revelation we talked about this morning, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Now the term shipwreck describes an utter, complete destruction. And so you read of descriptions of shipwreck, like the one in Acts chapter 27, it's not that it's just damaged, but it's utterly destroyed. So error can have the impact, as it does in this context, of utterly destroying someone's faith. Because it is undermining the very basis for faith itself. It undermines the word of God itself. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. You'll remember that we mentioned this morning that Hebrews is written in the context of Judaizing teachers who are trying to permeate the church and influencing them. In fact, the first nine chapters is a refutation of that. The first nine chapters of Hebrews is saying you're on the right path, Christ is the way, and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and so don't let them move you off of what you know to be the truth. Don't look for the new way in a different way. Stay with the same path that you know is right, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the danger of these Judaizing teachers as they begin to try to permeate the church? He says at verse 12 of chapter 3, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. They can lead you to the point 
that not only do you reject a portion of the truth, you reject another portion of the truth, and you could lose your faith altogether. It has happened time and time and time again. It is not the import of the study to list those, but I could list a whole list of men who were gospel preachers, who began to drink from tainted wells, and who then began to know more than what the scriptures had revealed, and finally gave up their faith and joined the Unitarian Church, or atheism within itself. You've heard of N.B. Hardiman. He had a son that was in, an intelligent man, Pat Hardiman. Knew his Bible inside and out, and he finally gave his faith up altogether, drinking from tainted wells. That happens time and again. And that illustration could be compounded. Let's go to Colossians 2. You'll recall from your studies of Colossians that Colossians is unique in this sense that it never specifically addresses a particular error, but hints at an uh, implication of error. What I mean by that, it does talk about error, and we know some of the specifics of it. But it's often referred to as the Colossian error because it was a convoluted kind of thing. It has an incipient form of Gnosticism. It has uh, some forms of Judaism. But the problem was that in, in Colossians, it doesn't seem they have been influenced completely by it, but there is a danger thereof. So what does he say about the danger of this doctrine? Well, look at Colossians 2 and in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Did you catch it? Look at verse, verse 8 again. Beware lest someone cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit. It's easy, or it could be, that they would deceive you. And through their deceit, through their philosophy, they pull you away from Christ. Look at verse 18. Same chapter, same context. Look at verse 18. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. That was part of the doctrine, by the way. Intruding into things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up, by his fleshly mind. So the danger is that this error could easily mislead and deceive you. Now let's go to one more passage along that line and then we'll move on to another point. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 14. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 14. This error that is being addressed in this context could ruin the faith of the hearers. We had just noticed verse 17 and 18, overthrow the faith of some. Let's back up to 14 now. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. To the ruin of the hearers. There could be some that strive about things that there ends up being no edification. There is no profit out of that, but it ends up ruining the faith of the hearers. That's the danger of error. So what's the danger of error? The damage it does, it can corrupt our morals, overthrow someone's faith, make shipwreck. One could lose their faith altogether, be misled, and it could ruin the hearers. Now, does that mean that every time someone hears error, their faith is ruined and their faith is made shipwreck? No. Because we've all been treated to error at some point. You've heard someone teach error. But there are those who could be influenced by that, and there is the possibility of error leading some astray. Let's talk about the teacher's soul. We're talking about the danger of error. The danger of error is the teacher's soul is endangered. And it might be someone out of the church, and so they're endangered already. It could be someone within the church 
that is a member of the church and that is, at the same time their soul is in danger. It again, it might be a private and undercover and under radar kind of teaching. Their soul could be in danger if they're advocating error. Let's see the evidence thereof. Go to the book of Jude, if you will. We mentioned this morning Jude and 2 Peter are parallel, at least in principle. I don't mean they're parallel texts altogether, but they address much the same theme. And so we're going to look at Jude and then we're going to look at 2 Peter. So let's go to the book of Jude first. And notice in Jude in verse 13, obviously he's dealing with false teachers starting at verse 5. We'll come back to that perhaps a little later. But in verse 13, raging waves of the sea, talking about their characteristics, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The false teachers under consideration, what's going to happen to them? Well, what's reserved for them is the blackness of darkness forever because they misled. They deceived. So their soul is in danger if they're advocating error. Well, let's go to 2 Peter. Notice the parallel account, or the parallel passage, again, at least in principle. And I say parallel because it deals with much of the same thing and gives some of the same illustrations about those who lost their souls. Beginning at verse 4, here is the illustrations that is given in 2 Peter. Now, I know he's talking about false teachers because verse 2 said, there were false prophets of old and there's false teachers among you. They secretly bring in destructive heresies, verse, verse 1. Now then he gives three illustrations, and he said, For if God did not spare the angels that sinned, and in interest of time, let's go down to verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, the people in the days of Noah, and the third illustration, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into uh, to destruction, now verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now what is he talking about? Well, verse 1 says he's talking about false teachers, those who advocate error. And his warning is, if God didn't spare angels that sinned, angels themselves, he cast them down to judgment. And if God didn't spare the world of old, but punish them, and God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but punish them, then God's going to punish these teachers who advocate their error. And so God's going to reserve them under punishment of the great day. So their, their soul is in danger. So if I begin to permeate error and teach error, the problem and the danger is my soul is in danger. Now let's talk about the appeal that it has. We're still describing the danger of error. Why is it dangerous? It's dangerous because of who it influences. It's dangerous because of the way it appears, the damage it does, the soul's in danger, but also the appeal that it has. Now, we're talking in general terms. This is not true of every false teacher. There are some false teachers who are genuinely interested and they think this is what the truth is. But there are some who fit the bill of 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 3. I use 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 as a principle, so let's go there. To 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 3. Paul has charged Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now at verse 3, for the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Now this focuses on the hearer. And we're going to make some application to the, to the teacher, the same principle, but here's the point. That is, they have itching ears. There is something they want to hear. There is a message they would love to be true, so they search out and they find a teacher who teaches what they want to hear. Well, there are teachers who teach things that they want to teach. How so? Let me give you an example of that. There have been men who've gone off on divorce and remarriage. 
who have defended that saying, when you question them, and I have questioned some of them, didn't you used to teach it this way and now you're teaching it different now? And the response sometimes is, well, when it's in your family, you look at it in a different light. Well, all right now. Now we've got the reason why they're teaching that. Because it fits their bill. My point is, quite often the appeal of error, and that's part of the danger, the appeal of it is that that's what we want. I want this person to be justified. I want this person to be justified. I want this principle to be true. And so I found something attractive in that. Now, that's not true of every teacher, but we know it's true of some, according to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. But here's another principle. Let's go back again to Jude. I keep going back to Jude and into 2 Peter because they both deal with the false teacher. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. They rail against authority. How so? Well, let's see. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Quite often, those who teach error are doing so because of the appeal that it has. Again, this is not everyone. This may not even be half of them. This may only be a small portion of them, but this is certainly true of some teachers. And you say, how do you know? Because 2 Peter says so. Let's see what it says. Look at verse 10. I know he's talking about false teachers. Verse 1 tells me that. Verse 10 says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. I want you to notice how they rail against authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. That's a railing against authority. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. That's a railing against authority. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might, uh, and might do not bring railing accusation against, the, against them before the Lord. Here is a railing against authority. We'll define that in a moment, but let's go to the book of Jude. Um, the book of Jude uh, talks about the same principle. Um, well, let me go back to 2 Peter. Well, before you leave that, I meant to get to verse 12. That they, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. There again is that railing against authority that we'll define in a moment. Let's go to Jude verse 8 through 10. Here again, they're speaking evil of dignitaries. And I'm just focusing on this general principle of railing against authority. Notice at verse 10, Likewise, they're also dreamers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Again, there's this railing against authority. How so? Well, often, here's how this begins. It begins as a rejection of some restriction and results to a rejection of the word and even God that is behind that. You say, I don't know that it works that way. Well, that's the principle of these passages. They rail against authority. On more than one occasion, I've had Bible studies with someone that maybe I had studied with and had baptized and had obeyed the gospel. I think one man in particular about 30 years ago. I'd baptized him, he'd obeyed the gospel. He remains faithful, and then he gets caught up in some sin that he has a hard time thinking that sin might be wrong. And so instead of recognizing the sin is wrong, he becomes logical in the sense that the Bible says that's wrong, and I don't want to accept that, so he rejected then the Bible and then ultimately rejected God and comes to me saying, I don't even believe there's a God anymore. How did you get to the point that you don't think there is a God? It started with a rejection of some restriction he didn't like. It might be a restriction against homosexuality. I don't like what God said about that. I can't see how God could condemn that. 
Or maybe it's against drinking, or maybe it's against divorce, whatever the case may be. They rail against authority in the sense they're railing against the restrictions. I don't like the restrictions. So how could God say that? And it ends up coming back to rejection of the Word and even God Himself. I'm not even sure the Word of God is true. I'm not sure there is a God. Because I don't like the restrictions. The danger of error is it has an appeal to what we may like and what we may want to do. Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about this and the lesson will be yours. Let's talk about dealing with error. What do you do when their error has, been uh, has come to surface? Suppose error is taught right here in this pulpit during a gospel meeting. Or suppose I teach error here. Suppose someone teaches it in a Bible class. Suppose someone is circulating material around that teaches error. Or again, it's done undercover, under radar. First of all, the Bible tells us it ought to be identified. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 10. Again, let's methodically work through several passages here. It needs to be identified. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, There are some among you that say there is no resurrection. There are some among you that do that. He didn't say there's some somewhere, some somewhere out there, somewhere out in far, far away land. There's some in this church right here, Corinth, that teach this doctrine, and they need to be identified. Turn to Romans 16 and in verse 17. If error is being taught and permeated through the church, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 16 and in verse 17, note those, the King James says, mark. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. They need to be identified. Need to be identified. This is the source right here. This is it. This is the, where the doctrine is. This is the teacher, and here's the doctrine. It's error. Let's go again. 2 Timothy 1 and 15. Perhaps the compounding passages will, one passage will enhance our understanding that another one may not. 2 Timothy 1 and 15, Paul writes to Timothy, and he mentions a couple by name, Phagellus and Hermogenes. He said, this know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Here's some who turned away from the truth. He identified who and what took place. Now, I want to suggest to you that's different from personal sin. Someone said, I, I thought you, instead of identifying, maybe you ought to go to them and, and them alone, and that's how you do that. Matthew 18 is talking about a sin that is against me or against you. You go tell him it's fault between you and him alone. If error is being taught, this is something public. That's a different story than Matthew 18. They're quite the contrast between the two, and time would fail us to go into that contrast. Secondly, how should error be dealt with? It ought to be rebuked. Let's go to Titus 1 and verse 9. By the way, Titus 1 is in the qualifications of elders and what elders should and should not do and what they ought to be able to do. So in Titus 1 and in verse 9, elders should be those who are holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince those who contradict. That's the teacher of error. Elders need to be prepared if error is taught to mount the class or mount the pulpit or wherever it may be and refute that error. Church where I used to preach, both before I was there and after I left, there was 
men who arose and taught error. It wasn't one of the preachers, but it was one of the elders who came to the pulpit and mounted the pulpit and said, error has been taught and I'm going to address it. Sometime on the spur of the moment, not knowing the error was about to be taught, but he would be taught and he would get up. Another occasion, he sat a preacher down and said, sit down, you're teaching error, you're done. That's the job of an elder. You're not teaching that anymore. He's to both exhort and convince the gainsayer. Error needs to be answered. Secondly, the teacher of error needs to be admonished, given an opportunity to change, an opportunity to repent. Reject a heretic, King James says, a divisive man. Heresy is divisive. That's why the, t- the terms are used that way, I think. But reject a divisive man or a heretic after the first and second admonition. Admonish them. Admonish them again. And say, think about your error. Turn from your error. They need to be admonished. The goal, let's go back to Titus 1 and 13, is not to humiliate, not to embarrass, but the goal is to correct the teacher of error. Suppose it's someone in the church teaching error. The goal is to have them to be sound in the faith. Look at verse 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Thirdly, error needs to be warned against. That's the reason it's identified. Mark those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine and avoid them. May come to the point that we need to warn against that. It may be someone in the area that's teaching error. We may need to warn this as a teacher of error, and here's what he's teaching. Need to warn against the teachers of error. Again, that's because of the leavening effect of the teaching. Because if we don't warn against it, then it has a permeating effect. And then it influences someone else. If the teaching goes on and nothing is said, nothing is done, then people begin to buy into that and say, you know, well, maybe that's true. And then their faith could be easily overthrown. Let me give you an example of that. Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Give you an example of what we're talking about. There needs to be a warning against that. 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 17. Remember those who had said the resurrection has already passed? They may be innocent in that, I don't know, but look at verse 17. Their message will spread like cancer, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of that sort. What are you trying to say, Paul? I'm trying to say Hymenaeus and Philetus are the teachers of that, and I'm identifying and I'm warning against them. That needs to be done at times. Error must be contended against. Let's go to the book of Jude. We've been talking about Jude time and again. Let's go one more time to the book of Jude. Jude verse 3 says, contend earnestly for the faith which is once delivered unto the saints. When error is taught, and error is rebuked, and error continues. It may be that we have to contend against that error. Fight against the error. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. One more passage. And we're through. Let's go to Acts chapter 15 and in verse 1. Do you remember that discussion about circumcision? Some were coming and saying, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Someone might say, what's the big deal about teaching circumcision? If they're circumcised, it ain't going to hurt them. Not gonna be, it's not going to cause them to be lost, to be circumcised. No, but they were binding something that God had not bound. And that was error. So what happened? Look at verse, 
Verse 2, therefore Paul, verse 1, let's go back and get verse 1. Some men came from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you be circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. In other words, they had some pretty heated discussion. Where Paul and Barnabas were contending for the truth, arguing for the very things they argue for later in the context at verse 12. Defending the truth. God has not bound this circumcision. So how should error be addressed? Well, it needs to be identified. It needs to be rebuked. It needs to be warned against. And it needs to be contended against. That might even involve contending back and forth and discussion. And when there is a discussion between truth and error, truth always wins. It always has. And it always will. What have we seen in our study today? We've been very slow and methodical working through some points that are very important. Important for us all. And that is to notice the dangers of error. Talk about determining error. How do I know error is being taught? How is error spread? What's the danger of error and dealing with error? How do we do that? How do we do dealing with error? There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?